Hello, this is Timmy Black, and welcome once again to another episode of The Lives of Contemporary Artists. Now, here's a story from the spring sales at Christie's that you probably haven't heard yet. You You already heard about the the record-breaking prices. We all know that. Uh, We all know. We all know. We we already already know that that for a multi-multi-millionaire, there are are few things more exhilarating, more more erotic, more endorphin-lifting, more ecstatic than being grifted by the taste making profiteers of the art world. I mean, as long as it has nothing to do with paying one's fair share of taxes, the rich love parting with their money. The the more dazzling the sums, the better. Now, of course, $195 million for uh, an Andy Warhol was no big surprise, but what do you make of this Vaughn Roberts, huh? Vaughn Roberts, $11 million for her 1921 oil sketch on birch panel, Tarsus and the Moors. Amazing. Huh? Vaughn Roberts. Now, if you have not been keeping up on the art news, let me just tell you, let me just keep you up to, up to speed here. Roberts was this early 20th century American expatriate, friend of Picasso, confidant of Max Jacob, arch rival of Sonia Delaney, occasional lover of Gabriel Buffet, and not least of all, and rarely mentioned, a solid, a solid, talented painter who until recently was known and appreciated primarily by, 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 by highly specialized, highly polished art historians and academics whose focus typically is on gynec and gender topology. In fact, my, my, my sister, my sister uh, majored in uh, gynec topology at Brown. And, 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 and uh, I'd, like to, I'd like to give her some credit here, a shout out to, uh, to my, my sister, Tanya, for helping me put together this episode. Anyway. If you're new to this specialized area of art history, if you need a little refresher, let me let me give you a quick sketch of Fawn Roberts, which may or may not shed light on her sudden, unlikely reevaluation and newfound appreciation. See, Fawn Roberts was what I call a real American. She was born in Bridgeport, Connecticut in 1882. And her father, Arthur Cannon Roberts, was a famous Pentecostal minister who was a real big enthusiast of of, 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 of fasting. And and he had a weakness for messianic end-of-days visions of fires and floggings and what my Sunday school teacher used to call low-grade mid-tribulation rapture. Now, Fawn, unlike her dad, was a skeptic. And even as a child, 
Even as a kid, she saw through her father's glossolalia, his mumbling, jumbling, talking in tongues, and, 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 and she actually considered it, she considered it as a form of human puppetry, a kind of regional theater grand spectacle. And later, in her unpublished memoirs, she even compared her dad's shtick to Artaud's Theater of Cruelty. So, as far as her early years in Connecticut, let's just say that, 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 that Fawn Roberts was considered by her friends, by her family, as being, I don't know, as being, as being difficult. She was, she, was, she was scrawny and she was introverted. She drew compulsively in these small pocket-sized notebooks and she wrote poetry. And uh, early on, early on, also, she recognized in herself a, a strong attraction to women. And so, in 1902, Fawn Roberts made the intelligent decision to board the SS La Touraine and head across the Atlantic for La Havre. And she never set foot in the United States again. Now, once in France, she enrolled in the prestigious École Nationale Vétérinaire d'Alfort. She was actually the first woman in Europe to study veterinary science, but after nearly losing an eye to a feral attack by a neutered Abyssinian, she dropped out of school and moved finally to Paris, living in the 18th arrondissement. And she soon, she soon found herself a regular at the uh, Bateau Lavoir, and she found work as a model for the likes of, I don't know, like, you know, George Brock, uh, Medio Modigliani, and in spite of, or maybe precisely because, her French was only rudimentary. She, she never really did master the language, even after 30 years. She became an avid participant in the burgeoning avant-garde of Montmartre. And at the urging of André Salmon, she's, who, who saw in her something of a kindred spirit, she started to paint. And here's where her lack of French fluency may be of some relevance, maybe. See, there, there, there are those who believe, and most famously, Professor Orestia Shestov of Northwestern, that, that Roberts's mangled understanding of Cubism. <laughs> she, 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 actually, she actually thought that Papier Collet was a kind of origami dog. Shestov believes that it was precisely this inadvertent misunderstanding of all these new artistic practices and, and theories. She, 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 she thought that Orphism was a form of, of, of clairvoyance. Anyway, her confusion, this confusion, this linguistic and conceptual alienation was precisely why Fawn Roberts' work was so profoundly original. You see, Shestov is the first historian to devote a lot of time to researching Fawn's father, Arthur Cannon Roberts. That's, we know about him because of Shestov's, Shestov's uh, research. She was struck by his... She was struck by, by Arthur Cannon Roberts's joyful pessimism and his and, and, and his talent for speaking in tongues. So 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 Shestov thinks 
that from a very early age, Fawn Roberts developed an ear and a comfort with, with, with gibberish. Rather than finding all this, this stuff threatening or obtuse, she found this bizarre vocalese, both, both, both comforting and, 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 and full of, of some vague poetic resonance. So it was only natural, Shestov argues here, that to Roberts, who lacked full comprehension of these French debates about the merits of uh, analytic and synthetic cubism or the reductiveness of suprematism or the utopianism of de Stille. To her, it was just clattering, nonsensical background noise, an esoteric chorus of passionately expressed sectarianism. And, and it provided, according to Shesto, the perfect soundtrack to her own unique graphic representations of sapphic tributism, which, by the way, was the only ism that Fawn Roberts really fully understood. She wasn't into isms. Not at all. She, she never allowed the stylistic twitches of her friends and colleagues to, to mock the deficit of her own ambition. She was a, she was a, she was a daydreamer. She, she always expressed herself with an, with an innocent, colorful solipsism. She, she ignored all the infighting and, and was indifferent to, to idealism. She, she, she had, she was void of all romanticism. She was she was actually hostile to modernism when you come right down to it, and she really had little use for the the, the urgent calls she heard all around her for, for 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 artistic progress, as if as if making pictures could somehow force the hand of history in the f- in favor of I don't know righteousness or even worse spirituality. No, no. If anything, Fawn Roberts was was closer to Dada. She she preferred to focus. She preferred to focus on love and, 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 and eros and fun and suffering and color and excess and process and above all to freedom. Which brings us here now in our bleaker time where our collective political consciousness has supposedly been elevated. See, our newly aroused sense of equity, our urge to include, our our very public penitential performance of remedial political rectitude, our need to, to demonstrate that it's not only the canonical works of white male misogynists like Picasso that can demand astronomic sums at auction, but also little known women who, 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 up until now, dwelled only in the footnotes. Now they too are fair game, are fair game. They are eligible for market inflation. So the pantheon of of the overpriced has now become inclusive. And I, as a mid-level, middling niche podcaster, I I celebrate this, this leap of progress, and and if I could, like Andre Breton imagined, if I could change my sex as if as if I were changing my shirt, I I would rebrand. I would re 
package. I would even replace the lives of contemporary artists.